All right, church, we come this morning in our worship of God together to the preaching of the Word of God. And I hope that's why you're here this morning, is that you came not only to see your friends and fellow church members, that you came to hear from the Lord, that you came to hear a word from the living God. And so that's what we do as the church of Jesus, is we gather around the words of God uh, each week, week in and week out, and we gather with a heart to receive, to, to believe, and to obey all that God has spoken to us in his word. And so we're going to do that again together this morning. And before we read God's word together, we're going to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, that God would give us help from heaven this morning to know his truth, to receive his truth. Let's pray together now. Father, we come today in Jesus' name. And Lord Jesus, you are the king today and forever. Lord Jesus, you are at the right hand of the Father even now and you reign over everything, every dominion, every rule, every authority, Lord, is yours. It's been given to you. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would reign over us this morning. We pray that as a mighty king, Lord, your word would run to and fro in our midst and, and have its way in the midst of your church this morning. Lord, we ask to be sanctified by your word. Lord, we pray that you would make us receptive to your truth. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would press your word upon our hearts this morning. Lord, that you would press your words into our soul. That you would cause us to love your word. That you would convict us with your word. That you would move us to obedience with your word. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. Lord, our souls are hungry today and needy today, and we need to see you, Lord Jesus. And so we pray, show us your glory. We pray that you would magnify the glory of the gospel in our midst this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, we have come to Deuteronomy chapter... 15 in our study of this book together and so the first thing we're going to do together is we're going to stand this morning for the reading of the word of God so if you're able to do that I want to invite you to stand this morning and we're going to read God's word together Deuteronomy 15 beginning in verse 19 this is the word of the Lord All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish... If it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Observe the month of Abib. 
and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of the free will offering from your hand, which you shall give to the Lord your God as he blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are all among you, At the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the feast of booze seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who is within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. Now, every heart in the room today that loves the Lord Jesus Christ desires to respond to him. In other words, if you truly love 
the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord is not just something that you say. If you truly love Christ, you desire to conform your life to his lordship. And the Bible gives us the occasion to do this every time we come across a commandment. In other words, the law of God provides us with circumstances and an occasion where those who love the Lord bow in submission to the authority of God. And we express that love to God in the form of obedience. This is why the Bible says that God's law is not bad. God's law is holy. God's law is righteous. God's law is good. The saints even say things like this about God's law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So in this section of Deuteronomy, we find occasion for Israel to respond to the lordship of Yahweh, to the authority of God, specifically over their possessions and over their time. God is their king. God lays claim to what they have and all that they are. And this section of Deuteronomy shows us that. Think back with me to chapter 14. Halfway through chapter 14 and and through chapter 15, God gives us laws expressing his lordship over Israel's possessions. Okay, We see this with the tithe commandment. We saw it. Last week with the law of releasing debts every seven years in Israel. We saw it again at the beginning of our reading today with the law of firstborns. This is what you do with the firstborns. These laws are God laying claim to his people's possessions. Okay? And there's an abiding principle here. God owns all of our stuff. Every bit of it. 100% belongs to the Lord. And he gives us commands in his word of how we're to steward those possessions that he lets us have. And we have an example of this to Israel in the Old Covenant. And then we come to chapter 16, and these are laws that express God's lordship over Israel's time. They are his people, and they are a free people, but they're not free to do whatever they want with their time. God gives them commandments of how they're to honor him with their time. And we see this with these three annual feasts that are prescribed for Israel, commanded of Israel. The Passover, the Feast of Weeks. And the feast of booze. And again, this is an abiding principle here. God owns all of our time. Okay? We don't get caught up in that cultural lie that we, man, we come to church on Sunday and we do whatever we want the, 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 all the, the rest of the days of the week. God owns all. We serve our king every single day. But he gives us commands in his word of how to spend our time in this world. And so we have this proclamation to Israel that God is your Lord. He is the owner of all that you have, specifically your possessions and your time. And so that's what we're headed this morning. Now I want you to notice two phrases as we read our passage this morning. There are two phrases that were they kept being repeated, right? And the two phrases are to the Lord and before the Lord. To the Lord and before the Lord. 
This happens nine times in this passage. I'll read them again very quickly. Chapter 15, verse 19. You shall dedicate to the Lord your God. Chapter 15, verse 20. You shall eat it before the Lord your God. Chapter 16, verse 1. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Chapter 16, verse 2, offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God. Verse 8, there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. Verse 10, keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God. Verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Verse 15, keep the feast to the Lord your God. Verse 16, appear before the Lord your God. Now, friends, I want you to think about how much is communicated to us in those two short prepositional phrases. To the Lord and before the Lord. Those phrases are shorthand summaries that should summarize the entire life of a Christian. Okay, If you were to get a Christian tattoo, which I don't recommend that you do, But these are the kind of things that summarize our whole life. We live to the Lord. Our whole existence is oriented towards Him. We don't live to ourselves. We are His. We live to the Lord. And our entire lives in Christ Jesus are lived before the very face of God. We live to the Lord. We live before the Lord. Those two prepositional phrases call us, remind us to live Godward lives. Not self-centered lives. Not serving myself. We live to God. We live lives that are to seek the face of God. We live before the Lord. Lives dedicated to Him. Lives that respond with joy when God lays claim to our time and to our resources. Now, one of the things that You may be thinking as we read our passage together this morning is, what does this stuff have to do with us? Okay. Now the New Testament teaches us that these Old Testament ceremonial laws, the law of the firstborn, which we started with this morning, and the three annual feasts in Israel, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booze, these laws have been fulfilled and abolished, superseded, by the coming of Christ. Just like the dietary laws that Ryan taught us about in Deuteronomy chapter 14 several weeks ago. Okay? They're in that same category that when Jesus came, okay, our covenant changed and the ceremonial laws, they passed away. Colossians 2 says this explicitly about the feast of Israel. Okay? They were shadows, the Apostle Paul says, but the substance is Christ. Jesus has come. Once the body comes, the substance comes. You don't need shadows anymore. These things have been replaced because they have been fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we study these feasts and these laws this morning from the perspective of new covenant fulfillment. And so as we read through and study through these commandments this morning, we're going to ask two questions every time we bump into uh, one of these commandments. And And the first question is this. What was the original intent of these laws in Israel? 
Okay? What, what, what did God have in mind in the wisdom of God? What did the people of God understand this to mean in its original intent, in the original audience? That's question number one. And question number two is we're going to ask, what is the new covenant application of these things? Okay? What are the abiding principles here that give us uh, insight and, 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 and wisdom in how to worship our God? Because we don't believe... These things are fulfilled. Jesus, you know, puts them away and we don't need them anymore. That's not what Paul teaches us. He says all scripture is breathed out by God and what? Profitable. It's profitable for the people of God. And so there's something here for us. Question number one, what was the original intent? Question number two, what is the new covenant application of these laws? We'll begin with the law of the firstborn. Chapter 15 Verse 19, we learn that the firstborn of the flock or the herd in Israel was to be dedicated to God in a special way. Okay, Couldn't do whatever you wanted with the firstborn of your flock. You couldn't work with it. And if you had, you know, some sheep, you couldn't shear it and sell, you know, uh, the wool and make money off of it. It was special. It was dedicated to God. Okay? Couldn't work with it. In fact, it was to be sacrificed and eaten before the Lord in a ceremonial meal, corporate worship meal, in the place where God puts His name a meal in the presence of God, a meal of fellowship, okay? And in fact, that theme, that, that uh, meal of fellowship, meal in the presence of God is a theme that unites this whole passage. What similarities do we have here with these three feasts and this law of the firstborn where they're all about sacrificing and eating in the presence of God? They're, they're how Israel uh, expresses worship to Yahweh and experiences His covenant presence in the midst of this nation. Now, as far as the reason for the firstborn commandment, the Bible points us backwards, okay? Backwards from Deuteronomy. Listen to Moses in Exodus 13. When Moses, when Pharaoh, excuse me, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so the reason for this commandment is not, man, there's something inherently special in the firstborn. So if you're a firstborn, just scrap that, okay? There's nothing inherently special in the DNA, okay? What's special about the firstborn is from Exodus forward in Israel, God said, that belongs to me. He laid claim to the firstborn. From that day forward, it was special because God called it his. So we have this backward gaze to the firstborn. It, it takes the people of God to, back to remember Egypt. Okay, Remember the Exodus. Yet... Not only does the law of firstborn point us backwards to the Exodus, okay, 
it also points us forward to the New Testament. And, one, and as we learn how to read our Bibles with, with Christ at the very center, we learn that these Old Testament commandments, they weren't arbitrary. Okay? This wasn't an arbitrary thing that, man, there's nothing special about the firstborn, but God says the firstborn's mine and this is totally arbitrary. We learn that God is actually orchestrating prophecy in the way that these laws play out in Israel. They don't just point backward, they also point forward to the New Testament. This is called typology in Scripture. The firstborn was a type. It pointed forward to the coming of Christ. In verse 21, Moses says that the firstborn, it couldn't be blemished. And if it was blemished, there was a whole provision made for a firstborn with a blemish. A firstborn with a blemish could not be offered to the Lord. The New Testament proclaims that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this law of the unblemished firstborn. Colossians chapter 1 twice calls Jesus the firstborn. Colossians 1.15 proclaims Christ as the firstborn of all creation. Then Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 proclaims not only is he the firstborn of all creation, Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. He says he's the firstborn from the dead. Meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these laws. Meaning that he is the preeminent one in all of creation, in all of new creation. He is the beginning. He is the alpha. He is first because he is Lord. These commandments point us to Jesus. And finally, Romans chapter 8 verse 29 calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers and that's good news for us meaning that what Christ has accomplished we enter into the firstborn has received his inheritance from the father but he shares that inheritance with his brothers and so this law it called for costly and meticulous sacrifice in Israel Yet this law was ultimately given to point the people of God to Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Next come the three feasts. Moses gives the commandments, the three annual feasts in Israel. And these are holy rhythms every year for the people of God. Okay, uh, One of the common things that is asked this time of year, especially in about a month from now, is, man, I need a new routine. I need to set some new routines. This was God's divine pattern every single year of how the annual life in Israel is to be lived out under the lordship of God. Rhythms of remembrance, rhythms of sacrifice, rhythms of joy in the presence of God. Look at verse 1. Passover's first, Moses tells Israel, keep the Passover. And then in verse 4, he tells them, eat and, and then eat unleavened bread for seven days. And so what happens here is that the Passover and the unleavened bread are two aspects of one feast. Okay, The Passover feast or the feast of unleavened bread. 
The Passover lamb is sacrificed, and then immediately after, there are seven days of Israel eating only unleavened bread. And both of these aspects, the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread, point Israel backward again to Egypt and to Exodus. In fact, the main purpose, Moses says in verse 3, the main purpose in this Passover feast that they would never forget. They would never forget. Look at verse 3. That all the days of your life you may remember the day that you came out of Egypt. And so God made provision for his old covenant people to, by divine mandate to draw their memory back to Egypt and to Exodus. In verse 1, Moses commands that the Passover is to be kept in the month of Abib. This is the first month in Israel's calendar. Later it became known as the month of Nisan, the first month. Okay, And one of the things we learn, especially in the book of Exodus, as the Passover actually takes place, is this event resets the calendar for the people of God. It literally is, is like pushing reset on time. When, they, when God brought them out of Egypt, reset button pushed, okay, now this is the first month for you. Okay? Meaning that the Exodus, the Passover, is when the clock began for Israel as a nation. It was the defining act that constituted them as the holy nation of, Yah- of Yahweh is when God brought them out of Egyptian bondage. And the book of Exodus chronicles this. Moses lived through this. Moses led this Passover. It was the final plague of judgment that God unleashed on Egypt, on Pharaoh, and on that unbelieving nation. God called in that final plague for the death of every firstborn. That was the judgment. But gracious provision was made in the first Passover in the form of a Passover lamb. God announced a coming judgment. Every firstborn will die, but then God gave this lamb. And he promised his people that if you will take the blood of that lamb and you will smear it over the doors of your house, and if you will eat that lamb as a household and as a family, that judgment will Pass over your house. No death. And so in the Passover we see judgment proclaimed. And provision made for salvation. And God kept his word. Firstborns died all across the land of Egypt. We're told in the book of Exodus that there wasn't a house. That there wasn't someone dead. But among the people of God. God passed over in judgment. We have a picture in the Passover, and this is one of the most important lessons in the Old Testament. God gave his people a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. The smallest in Israel could remember what was being communicated in this lesson. You mean the lamb dies instead of us, Moses? Is that what you mean by the Passover? That God gave us a lamb and that lamb dies instead of us? This is a gracious provision from God. 
at Passover, Israel learned this great lesson. And part of Israel's annual rhythms was to revisit this exodus, revisit this salvation and this deliverance. And it was to only be celebrated in the presence of God, where God put his name. Look at verse 5. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice in any of your towns. So it wasn't part of private worship. Couldn't keep the, you know, the Passover with just you and your besties. It was part of the, the nation's corporate worship in the presence of God. For six days after that Passover lamb was sacrificed, Israel was to eat unleavened bread. And you see how serious that commandment is in verse 4. He says, no leaven is to be found in all of your land. Okay, And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with leaven. Okay, Nothing uh, inherently more spiritual about eating unleavened than leaven. Okay, There's something more going on here. God is instituting these ceremonies, these commandments to point us forward. So again, we see the same thing that we saw with the firstborn. The Passover command points backwards to the Exodus, points backwards to Egypt, but it also points us forward. And you see that dual aspect play out in every single commandment in this chapter, in all the feasts. They point backwards and they point forwards. Passover pointed forwards in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was at a Passover that Jesus lived out the final week of his earthly life in this world. Okay, That wasn't an accident. That was intentional. Holy week happened, corresponded to a Passover feast in Israel in the holy city of Jerusalem. Passover became the context that Jesus taught his disciples to interpret his death. In other words, when Jesus died, it wasn't just, man, poor Jesus, he died, he was crucified. The Romans were, were, were mean, mean to him, the Jews rejected him. Jesus taught his followers that what was about to happen was the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb. What all these other Passovers have been pointing to and preaching for hundreds of years at this point was about to be fulfilled in the offering up of the true Passover lamb. He taught us, he taught us this the night before his crucifixion. He gave his disciples the Lord's Supper at a Passover meal. At a Passover meal. Jesus' death was the sacrificing of the true Passover lamb. And the gospel proclaims that all who partake of this lamb, we do it by faith. If we trust in Jesus Christ, it's like that old covenant picture of smearing the blood on our doors and consuming the lamb in our households. When we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we partake of him. And all who do, do so are saved from judgment. We are passed over in judgment. And not only that, the gospel tells us that when we partake of this lamb, we're brought out of slavery to sin. True lamb, true Passover, true exodus fulfilled 
and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to turn really, really quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to get your eyes on two verses by the Apostle Paul. Paul says this. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore keep the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so I want you to see that as plainly as it's written there. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The word of God assures us that Jesus Christ has accomplished everything that the Passover ever pointed to has been accomplished in the crucifixion and the slaughtering of the true Passover lamb. And then I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul transforms the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember that order there. Moses says, Passover sacrifice is offered, and then six days of unleavened bread are to be eaten in Israel. No leaven in all your land. Notice what Paul does here. He transforms the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By portraying the church on earth as living now during the feast of unleavened bread. Our life in this world as followers of Jesus is like that six day period that's following Passover. Christ is sacrificed, Paul says, so celebrate the festival. Yet, Paul says as we keep this feast, the feast of unleavened bread, not like they did, not by refraining from literal leaven throughout all the land. That's not what Paul says. But by refraining from the leaven of sin. This is how we keep the intent of this feast in the new covenant. Paul's drawing this drastic line here between our pre-Passover life Then the Passover lamb has been crucified. Now keep the feast. But not with any leaven. Not with the leaven of sin. But with the unleaven of sincerity and truth. And so what we have here is just like the Passover reset the calendar for Israel. The true Passover resets the calendar for the people of God. The Bible describes salvation in these terms. When we come to Christ, when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says the old passes away, praise God, and what? And the new has come. There's a new creation that is brought about by the work of Jesus Christ. We are new creations in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, so keep the feast. You don't have to eat the leaven anymore. You live in in the time of fulfillment. You live on the backside of the crucifixion of the Passover lamb. So keep the feast without leaven. Eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
I hope you see the similarities here. Just as Israel was constantly looking back to the Exodus, remembering the Passover, and just as Moses exhorted them, never forget, never forget the day that God brought you out of the land of Egypt. Christians are called to look back to the true Passover and never forget the day that the blood was shed for our redemption, to cover our sins, to bring us out of slavery. Just as Passover was the fundamental act constituting the nation of Israel, the true Passover is the fundamental act constituting the true Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. We, were, we are the ones who have been purchased by the blood of our Passover lamb. And so Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And I want you to hear that this morning as really good news. It is really good news that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And what that means for us is that we don't have to live under judgment anymore. That proclamation of the holy justice of God that's going to consume all the wicked of the earth, we don't have to live under the fear of that judgment anymore. Why? Because we've been passed over. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And friends, it gets better than that. We don't have to live under the fear of slavery anymore. We don't have to serve King Sin. We don't live in slavery to sin anymore. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And he brought us out of Egypt. He brought us out of slavery. He gave us a whole new start. He gave us all the resources that are needed to live a holy life that pleases God. One of the things that they said about the Lord Jesus, this is John chapter 1 verse 29, is they, they, they said about him, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so there's something happens when Jesus comes as the true Lamb of God. He's the final Lamb of God. And as, as He gives Himself as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin, there's no blood sacrifices for the people of God ever again. He finished it. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 16 again, verse 10. Moses commands Israel to keep the Feast of Weeks. Where have we been so far? Law of the Firstborn, Feast of Passover. Then verse 10, he says, keep the Feast of Weeks. And he says, this feast is to occur seven weeks after the beginning of the grain harvest. The Bible also calls this feast, it's got several names. It's called the Feast of the Harvest. It's called the Feast of Firstfruits. And it's called the Feast of Pentecost. Okay? Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest, Feast of the First Fruits, and, Pe and the Feast of Pentecost. And the theme of this feast is to offer some of the first fruits of the harvest as a tribute to the Lord of the harvest. So, seven weeks after you've put the first sickle to the grain, 
enough time for you to gather up some of the first fruits, but not at the very end of the harvest. That's next, okay? This is where this feast is situated, and the commandment is you take some of those first fruits, and he calls for, in verse 10, a free will offering, which is a voluntary sacrifice from the people of God. No mandated percentage, not like the tithe, the 10% tithe earlier in chapter 14. It's a free will offering. God gives to you, you begin to harvest some of what God gives to you, and you give some back to God. Free will offering to the Lord. And again, this feast pointed Israel back to Egypt, back to the Exodus. Look at verse 12. You shall remember at the Feast of Weeks, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And so part of celebrating this ceremony is, Lord, I don't deserve this. Lord, I remember who I was apart from you. Lord, I remember that slavery. I don't deserve this harvest, but I honor you. You are the Lord my God. You are my Redeemer, the one who brought me out of Egypt. I was a slave. You made me free, and I honor you with the first fruits. It points backwards. But again, we see... In this law, the, the law of the Feast of Weeks, it also points forwards. Okay, points backwards and points forwards. The Feast of Weeks finds its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. It was during the Feast of Weeks that the ascended Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ascended to the right hand of God, sat down on the throne of heaven and during the Feast of Weeks, he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost. All the Feast of Weeks prior to this were pointing to this moment. And all of a sudden the promise of the Father was poured out on the people of God. Acts chapter 2 says that this happened during the feast when all the Jews of the diaspora, all the Jews that were scattered out in the Roman Empire... They're all gathered in to the holy city. Why? Because this is a feast day. They're keeping the law of Moses. And then all of a sudden, all these peoples that are represented at, at, at Pentecost, all of a sudden the Spirit of God is poured out and the people of God begin to speak in new tongues. And all of a sudden the gospel of Jesus Christ is being announced to all the nations of the earth. The beginning of fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham coming to the nations because Jesus is pouring out the promise of the Father on the day of Pentecost. It was during this festival in Acts chapter 2 that God gave the first fruits. For hundreds of years prior, the people gave the first fruits to God, but at Pentecost, God turns around and gives the first fruits to his people. Christians live in the days of fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks, the days of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Friend, think about this. In the New Covenant, how is it that we are to transition from unrepentant to repentant? How are we supposed to make that jump? How is it, friends, that we are to transition from unbelieving to believing the gospel? How is it that we are to transition from loving sin to loving Christ? How are we going to make that jump? 
How is it that we're going to make the jump from blindness to seeing His glory? How is it that we will transition from serving King Sin to serving King Jesus? How is it that we are going to live as Christ's witnesses in this world with power from on high? How is it that we will persevere to the very end? And the answer to all of those is through the Holy Spirit. We will do all of those things because God will pour out His Spirit from on high. Romans chapter 8 verse 23 tells us that Christians, listen, have received the first fruits of the Spirit. God gave us the first fruits. And it began on the day of Pentecost. Meaning, we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. Meaning, we already have received a down payment on our inheritance. Becoming a Christian is not, man, you're going to be really rich one day in glory. It is that, but, it, but it's not just that. It's, man, you're going to be really rich in glory. You're going to live forever in the presence of Christ. And in the meantime, third person of the Trinity is going to dwell inside of you. You're going to have newness of life. You're going to have power from on high. You're going to have resources to obey God. And you never had these resources before. You're going to be born again. It's a gift of the Spirit. The blessing of the new covenant. The fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks reminds us that we are not alone in this world. We're not by ourselves. Christ has given us his spirit. Jesus lives inside of us through his spirit. God gives his people the first fruits. Look at verse 13 in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13. Moses commands Israel to keep the feast of booze. The feast of booze. Now, the Bible gives us two other names to this festival. It's called the Feast of the Ingathering. And it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? Same name. I mean, same feast, different name. Okay? This feast, Moses says, occurs at the very end of the agricultural year. The very end of the year in Israel. After all the grain and all the grapes have been fully harvested, that's the ingathering at the very end, Israel is to keep feast. And for seven whole days, Israel would dwell in temporary shelters. And again, these structures call them back to Egypt. These booths, these tabernacles, these tents. This commandment was given to remind them of the structures that they camped in on their way out of Egypt. Their, their, their exodus tents, so to speak. And so again, we see this gaze back to the exodus. Israel was to never forget. Never forget. And again, in this feast, we see not only the gaze backwards, but also the pointing forward shadowing the coming of Christ, pointing forward to the new covenant. Listen to these words in John chapter 1, verse 14. John says this, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Friends, that word dwelt there 
It means tabernacled. John is proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God. And in his incarnation, that eternal word came to us in the flesh, fully God and fully man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And and John says, when Jesus did that, he pitched a tent in your midst. He tabernacled in your midst. The incarnation was, was Christ willingly entering into the wilderness, so to speak. The wilderness of this world, pitching his tents in the midst of mankind, in his lowly state of humiliation. Why would he do this? And the Bible answers, to save his people from their sins. To save his people from their sins. And so the Feast of Booze points forward to the first coming of Jesus Christ when he tabernacled among the people of God. And John says, and we saw his glory. Even though the world didn't in that lowly state, we, we saw his glory. We saw him for who he truly is. He's the son of God. And I would argue that not only does this feast point to the first coming of Jesus, I think it also points us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's at the very end of the harvest. Its name is the Feast of the Ingathering. It reminds us that there's a last day harvest still to come. And that all the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be gathered in. And on that final day, Jesus will return again and do what? He'll dwell in our midst. And we'll see Christ. And we'll behold His face. So we have these feasts in Israel. They're constant rhythms of looking backward to what God has done. And looking forward to the promise of Messiah. And in fact, all these feasts, all three of them, and there's more in the Old Testament. But all three of these annual feasts anticipate this glorious final feast. It's just escalating the whole way through. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper after the sermon when we, when we partake of the supper together. We'll talk, all this, this is just escalating, the coming of Jesus. But the final climax is a feast. And the Bible gives the name of this feast in the book of Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have shadows all throughout God's word of of man in the presence of God. Man enjoying fellowship from God. But this is going somewhere. This is going somewhere. There will be a meal in eternity for every believer in the presence of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that? Jesus describes it this way. A day when many will come from east and west and take their place at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Are you ready for that day? To dwell forever in the presence of Jesus Christ without sin, without suffering, without sickness, without sorrow, never-ending joy, indestructible joy. What an awesome day. Isaiah prophesied this final feast with these words in Isaiah 25. Listen. On this mountain, 
the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Brothers and sisters, the Feast of Israel remind us that the best is yet to come for the people of God. Your God is going to swallow up death itself. And He's coming to save His people forever from their sins. And so I want you to know for certain this morning, this is just a summary, I want you to know for certain that Jesus Christ is the firstborn. There is no other. It pointed to Him. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the preeminent Lord of all. Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus Christ is the Passover, and I want you to know it. There's no other Lamb coming. Jesus Christ fulfilled Pentecost. He poured out the promise of the Father. He gave the first fruits of the Spirit to all of His followers. And Jesus Christ is the Lord of the last day harvest. He's the Lord. Christ is all. Christ is glorious. And I want you to see that this morning. He's everything to us. He's everything to the people of God. If you don't have Jesus... It doesn't matter whatever else you have in this world, you have nothing. You have nothing. If you do have Jesus, it doesn't matter whatever else you lack in this world, you have everything. This is the Son of the Father. God's gift to us, the beloved Son. And so I want us to close this morning worshiping Him. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we come and we ask that You would bless us this morning by Your Spirit and through Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that Jesus Christ would be exalted in our hearts. God, we ask that Christ would be treasured Above everything in this world, we ask that Christ would be worshipped. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of worship. And Lord, we pray that you would make Jesus Christ glorious. And we pray for those who are blind and can't see it. God, we pray that you would cause the blindness to be banished from them. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would exalt the glory of Christ in your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.